Zheng Cheng is the author of the best-selling books Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China, Mao, The Unknown Story, Empress Dowager Cixi, The Concubine Who Launched Modern China, and Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. Her books have been translated into more than 40 languages and sold more than 15 million copies worldwide. During the Cultural Revolution, Zheng Cheng worked as a peasant, a barefoot doctor, a steelworker, and an electrician before becoming an English language student at Sichuan University. She left China for Britain in 1978 and obtained a PhD in linguistics in 1982 at the University of York, the first person from communist China to receive a doctorate from a British university. Zheng Cheng, welcome to the creative process. Well, thank you for inviting me. And so I believe you're well known for your many books, uh, but Wild Swans is really what puts you on the map and what has been translated, I believe, in over 40 languages. And I believe we'll just start giving listeners a taste of that book if they don't already know it. Wild Swans is my first book. It's about the stories of my grandmother, my mother and myself and our stories reflect the history of 20th century China. I'm going to read the passage from chapter 24, and it's about my trip to my mother's camp where she was sent to, and I went to visit her. In 1970, this is during the Cultural Revolution. I stayed 10 days and was to depart for my father's camp on New Year's Day. My nice truck driver was to pick me up where he had dropped me off. My mother's eyes moistened because although his camp was not far away, she and my father were forbidden to visit each other. I put the food basket on my back untouched my mother insisted I take the whole lot to my father. Saving precious food for others has always been a major way of expressing love and concern in China. My mother was very sad that I was going and kept saying she was sorry I had to miss the traditional Chinese New Year breakfast which her camp was going to serve. Tang Yuan, round dumplings, symbolizing family union. But I could not wait for it for fear of missing the truck. My mother walked a half an hour with me to the roadside and we sat down in the high grass to wait. The sweep of the landscape undulated with the gentle waves of the thick coggin grass. The sun was already bright and warm. My mother hugged me, her whole body seeming to say that she did not want to let me go, that she was afraid she would never see me again. At the time, we did not know whether her camp and my commune would ever come to an end. We had been told we would be there for life. There were hundreds of reasons why we might die before we saw each other again. My mother's sadness infected me 
and I thought of my grandmother dying before I was able to get back from Ningnan. The sun rose higher and higher. There was no trace of my truck. As the large rings of smoke that had been pouring out of the chimney of her camp in the distance thinned down, my mother was seized by regret that she had not been able to give me the New Year's breakfast. She insisted on going back to get some for me. While she was away, the truck came. I looked toward the camp and saw her running toward me, the white golden grass surging around her blue scarf. In her right hand, she carried a big colorful enamel bowl. She was running with the kind of carefulness that told me she did not want the soup with the dumplings to spill. She was still a good way off, and I could see she would not reach me for another 20 minutes or so. I did not feel I could ask the driver to wait that long, as he was already doing me a favor. I clambered onto the back of the truck. I could see my mother still running toward me in the distance, but she no longer seemed to be carrying the bow. Years later, she told me the bow had fallen from her hand when she saw me climbing onto the truck, but she still ran to the spot where we had been sitting just to make sure I had really gone. Although it could not have been anyone else getting onto the truck, there was not a single person around in that vast yellowness. That's so moving. And I think that that really illustrates and then that's your own personal family stories. You say your your mother, your grandmother, and of course, you know, others in your in your family, you tell that whole story. But it's a real great example of what you do there. And then in your other books of uh, history, where we can feel them as though there are family members and these abstract what might seem like abstract, distant historical events become close to us and vivid. I was interested in, in something you ha had written, and I know you know you lost your father and grandmother during the Cultural Revolution, but you had also said that it brought your family closer together, and I thought that was an interesting perspective. Yes, well, I think you know a war, which is devastating, often also bring out the best in people. In the Cultural Revolution, many families were wrecked because spouses were forced to denounce each other or under heavy pressure to denounce each other. And children were in, um, encouraged to set upon their parents. So I saw, I knew many families were wrecked by that sort of a political campaign. But my family became closed because in that sort of abnormal and ex extreme situation, the children developed a new love for our parents because we saw that, you know, my parents became kind of heroes in our mind. My father 
was one of the few who stood up to Mao and protested the Cultural Revolution. And he was arrested, tortured, driven insane. He was exiled to a camp and um, eventually you know, died in prematurely. And my mother was under tremendous pressure to denounce my father. She refused. So she went through over a hundred of those ghastly denunciation meetings. And she was made to kneel on broken glass. She was paraded in the streets where children spat at her and threw stones at her. But I mean, she was exiled to a camp, but she survived. And my mother, so when we were under tremendous pressure to denounce our parents, we stood by our parents and my family became much closer. And my father, when I went to visit him in his camp, said to me that if it hadn't been for his family, he would have committed suicide long before. So we, we became a strong, very strong family. We developed an understanding for our parents and a respect for them. So my family became really close together. It's, it's so horrible when your country does these crimes and then encourages the, its population to then do these crimes, how that devastates a whole country. And we just might not, you might take how many years to process the kind of trauma that you went through? Well, for me, I think, um, well, I think writing Wild Swans was the thing that resolved the trauma for me. When I first um, came to Britain in 1978, I was one of the first people to leave China and to come to the West. I wrote about the experience in Wild Swans. And for many years, I had um, nightmares of the horrible things I, I saw and experienced. And writing Wild Swans made all these nightmares disappear. It was a wonderful process. The writing process turned trauma into memory. I was able, I am now able to talk to you about my book, to, about my life, to read it without too much pain. I think this is a luxury people in China still don't have. I mean, trauma has been suppressed. It has not been turned into memory. So I feel I'm very lucky. Writing is really the thing that has done the trick. And it took you, uh, and though a, a number of years, I understand, to find that courage to bear witness. I can imagine, like in, in the immediate aftermath and coming to to Britain, uh, that the urge would be then to forget. So, how many years, and how how did you find that voice? I, I know that your mother was a collaborator, and in your first book, <laughs> yes. Well. I, for 10 years after I arrived in Britain, I didn't want to write this book um, because it, to write for me would be to turn backward and inward into a past I wanted to forget all about. You mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, my father died in the Cultural Revolution, my beloved grandmother who brought us up died and their death 
um, were the main, most painful and are still the most painful spots in my heart. Um, so I didn't want to think about those things. And I, I wanted to enjoy life in Britain because I had come to a completely different world. Everything was new. It was like landing on Mars. And I was having a fantastic time. I was the first person to um, do many things, to go out on my own, to, you know, to lead a, a fantastic life. And life was full of exciting events. And so I, I, I just wanted to, to live, to live a new life. And then in 1988, my mother came to stay with me. And so for the first time, she told me the stories of her life and of my grandmother, her relationship with my father. And when I was listening to my mother, I, I said to myself, I've got to write all this down. And then I realized how much I wanted to be a writer and how much I had always wanted to be a writer. And I loved writing when I was a child. But um, when I was growing up in Mao's China in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, it was impossible even to dream of being a writer. Being a writer was, was the most dangerous thing because almost all the writers were persecuted under Mao. So that desire to write had been firmly imprisoned in my subconscious. But now I realized that, you know, when in China, I had to burn my first poem I wrote in 1968 on my 16th birthday, because Red Guard had come to raid our flat. I mean, if they seen the poem, we would have Got in the family would have got into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear down the poem and flush it down the, down the toilet. And, but the desire to write did not leave me. And in the following years, when I was exiled to, to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and then as an electrician. And when I was spreading manure in the paddy fields and when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen. But then I couldn't write. And then after I went to Britain, I didn't want to write. And but after my mother opened the floodgate of memories and told me and left me 60 hours of tape recordings that I decided to write. And then it was a very quick process and it took me only two years to write Wild Swans, a rather long book. And so I realized that, I mean, a lot of the things in the book uh, had been written in my head when I was back in China. Yeah, I think so. It was just a distilling the, all of this, and then the the layer of memory of your mother, which is you know beautifully interwoven. And I think it really. I'm just thinking that there's there's a few writers who have imagined to bring across the vividness of history. I think of Hilary Mantel. She does it in a slightly more fictional way, but it's yeah. this thing. It, the academic research does never drown the the living characters, and we really feel like we can know them. So I wanted to go back on your earlier point about writing allowing you and perhaps your family to 
resolve the trauma of the past. And I was wondering, you know, did writing in English sort of help you put a distance to the past? And why did you choose to write in English instead of in Chinese? Um, why did I just, just, well, I think, you know, my books are still banned in China. So at the time when I started writing, it didn't, the question didn't, um, didn't rise because I was, I was in Britain, I'd been in Britain for 10 years. I'm happy to write in, to use English as the media. I, I had a doctorate in linguistics um, from the University of York. In, in Britain. And when I decided to write, I had publishers and um, immediately there were many offers from other languages. And um, in a way, um, I mean, in a way from a practical, to write in English was, came naturally to me. I think to write in Chinese would have been more complicated. I mean, probably I wouldn't have found the publisher. Well, in, in from China. I mean, it's, I was in England. It was just completely natural. Having said all that, my, all my books are also translated into Chinese. And I translated three, the three biographies. And Wild Swans was translated by a brother of mine. But of course, I read through the manuscript, I corrected things. I remember that I was actually going into an operating theater. I was being wielded into an operating theater to have a major operation. And I was reading the manuscript in Chinese. Um, I was <laughs> reading the, the text. And, and that was what I was thinking. The Chinese language publishing was important to me. It was published in Taiwan in 1993. Wild Swans. And then there were the three biographies I wrote, biography of Mao, biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, and the, the group biographies of the three Song sisters. Now, with all these biographies, I chose, I mean, of course, I wrote them all in English first, and then I chose to translate them myself, because I only, I knew where all the documents were. I mean, Wild Swans is family memories, um, but these three books are based on solid archive materials. And I've researched for years and I knew where the, all the sources were and it would have been impossible to get to ask somebody else to do the translation. And I didn't trust anyone else to do the translation. I enjoy, I, although I, I have written in English and will continue to do so, but I also love writing in Chinese. I wanted, um, I love the pleasure of playing with the language. So in a way, it's not an issue with me. I, you know, in a way, I've written all my books twice once in English, once in Chinese. And going into those biographies, and the, mm -hmm. I believe it was 12 years of, of research on Mao, and at the time, it should be emphasized that when that was published, I mean, really, these materials, um, you, you're going to primary uh, source research, it just mm -hmm. hadn't been published. We, we just didn't know this story. And just tell me, uh, with all this research, just tell us a little bit about the, the interviews you were able to conduct, archives too, and just, and then what's the selection process after you have all this immense 
material? And uh, well, what did you also discover in the process of it? Well, I mean, my husband, John Halliday, a historian and a writer, and I spent 12 years of our life researching and writing Mao. And we traveled all over the world. We worked in over 30 archives, and particularly the Russian archives. You know, we were very lucky. And we caught a historical window because in the 1990s, you know, Wild Swans was published in 1991, and we started um, working on the biography of Mao in 1993. And um, at that time, Yeltsin opened the archives of Russia, and, and that is an absolute treasure trove. Uh, you know, about Mao, about international communism, and about world politics. My uh, husband uh, speaks Russian. He, he spent years working in the Russian archives, looking for materials. And we had such great fun. And we love, we both love working in the archives. And we were also able to interview people who knew Mao, who are contemporaries of Mao, and they were still alive. Of course, now, you know, 30 years later, I mean, they, most of them are dead, but at the time they were alive and they allowed us to interview them and um, to record their unique experiences. And we also had great fun. And I mean, for example, we interviewed them Imelda Marcos, the former first lady of the Philippines. <laughs> and she had a flirtatious relationship with Mao because when, when she met Mao in 1974, Mao's eyes sparkled. He was nearly blind, but his eyes sparkled. And he picked up Imelda Marcos's hand and put, put it to his lips. He kissed Imelda's hand. And this gesture, at the time in the Cultural Revolution would have subjected people to denunciation meetings, to say the least, because it was like all polite gestures were condemned as a bourgeois habit. Let's back, back to our interview with Imelda. And after our interview, um, Imelda Marcos batted her eyelids, you know, furiously at John, and then uh, she said to me, you know, Western men simply don't understand us Eastern women. And so I asked her, uh, John asked her, have you come across any Western men who understand you? And she said, only one person, Richard Nixon. Because, <laughs> you know, before Mao died, Mao's desire was his last desire was to see Richard Nixon. And he, he invited Nixon to, to China. And he also, he did ask Imelda Marcos to, to personally go and invite Nixon for him. So Imelda went to America and invited Richard Nixon. And Nixon went to China at the beginning of 1976 and Mao died in September. And we had such fun researching the Mao, Mao biography. 
and we we went one year and we were in hong kong and at the time i was able still able to travel freely and research the biography of mao so it was still relatively open and we were in Hong Kong after our trip to China, and we were in our hotel. And John was in the bathroom reading the local paper, and he suddenly shouted, "Guess who is in this hotel? It's a Mobutu. You know, Mobutu, the press, former president of Zaire, now Congo." And John said, "Shall we find somebody to introduce us?" And I said. Oh, John, I've done two month interviews. I'm exhausted. I'm going to the hair salon. So I went to the hair salon. And 10 minutes later, who but Mobutu strutted in and sat, you know, like my the next chair. And so I was able to approach Mobutu while I was led to have my hair rinsed and ask him for an interview. And that's how we got an interview with Mombuto. I mean, those years where we worked so hard, but we devoted all every minute to our project. We discovered so many unknown things. I mean, every day was a day of excitement. And we also did all these um, tremendous interviews. And these people who are now dead have, you know, left their memories with us. So I'm very, very happy with the kind of writer's life I have been leading. I'm Anastasia Yang from UC Berkeley. I'm a neurobiology writing and mental health podcaster for the Creative Process and the One Planet podcasts. I found it fascinating the way Jung Chang described how it was writing that allowed her to turn her trauma into memory. It's something that I've seen from my own experiences and those of people around me, that in the darkest periods of our lives, people consistently turn to writing, to take this big mess inside of us and try our best to turn it into something even slightly more coherent than it was before. This interview really touched on the core of why I write, especially creative nonfiction. We all have our own demons, things that make us shiver with rage, breathless with frustration, but we too have a way to calm the waters inside, turning our most vulnerable into our most powerful. And of course, the biggest power of writing is that it is able to unearth truth, not just from our own pasts, but also historical truths, telling the full story of people who may have been maligned by history. This following poem was inspired by the Creative Process's interview with Jung Chang. It's titled, A Dangerous Profession. Writing was a most dangerous profession during a time when manners were banned as bourgeois and we were not allowed to have individual thoughts. It is no surprise that during a time when we were told to prize red above all else, writing was considered a luxury not a necessity. But through rules and punishments, torture and traumas, our stories remained, burning, begging to be released from the depths of our memories, desperate to be let out from the gilded cage that trapped them inside. We were damaged people, 
Our trauma was a tangled mess, and the more we yanked, the more tangled it became. So we refrained from touching the string, avoiding it the way we were told. But writing, writing became the gentle hand that probed. It loosened the knot with patience and maturity, laying bare what had been suppressed for decades, turning trauma into memory, allowing us to process when before we had only sensed. And the broken glass we were made to kneel on became the kaleidoscope we used to show the world the true colors of our past. Perhaps that is how we live forever, in the memories that preserve the truth for us so that when history tries to vilify or idolize, all it takes is for one curious writer to illuminate the truth. Writing is power. It's able to break the barriers between past and present, to tear down the misconceptions that had been built and sustained on an empire of political glory, to utterly destroy history's portrayal of people. And as I write the truth, my truth for the entire world to see, I recognize that writing is a most dangerous profession indeed. And now back to the interview. Well, it's it's wonderful to have this, as you said. It was not the, those stories were not unearthed before. They're maybe hidden in some archives, but who we're not getting a chance to visit them. You distill them, you bring them together, and it. I think it's a great lesson. I think also going forward, as we see, well, Mao was remarkable in his disregard for human life, but we see other traits of people who can share those qualities. So I think it's invaluable to understand what makes a person disregard human life to the tune of mm. 70 million deaths. Mm. But talking about some of your other interviews, because I, I do wonder, if, you know, myself an interviewer, the strategies oh. for interviewing people, someone like Kissinger, I think you, and yes. um, you know, world, yes. how do you I get, maybe Kissinger was open, but I think that there's a certain way of dealing or finding out what you need to know. Well, he wasn't all that open, <laughs> yes. But we, we've done our research, we've done our work. We got a lot of the transcripts of his meetings with Mao. My husband got them also from various archives, Northeast archives in Washington. Well, I think at one point when we were discussing what one thing he talked to Mao about, and he suddenly said, how do you get that? Did the Chinese give it to you? It was a things like that, but once he knew, we actually knew what his conversations with Mao, and he became more forthcoming and more open. And with the research in America, and there was also, it was quite extraordinary also. One, one interview we did was with Gerald Ford, the former US president. And with all the other interviews, we had found people to introduce us. And we hadn't found anyone who could introduce us to Gerald Ford. So John, my husband, was in the hotel room and he thought, mm, how can we find Ford? Mm. Well, he then looked up the telephone directory in, the, in his hotel room, looked under S for secret service. <laughs> secret service. <laughs> guarding the American president under S secret service and he dialed the number. 
and the man picked up the phone. This was before 9-11. Yeah, we know in the 1990s. And the man answered the phone, said, Secret Service Ford Protection Detail. And uh, immediately gave us the number for their guys who are protecting Ford. <laughs> and, um, and said, well, you know, there is a time difference. I mean, America is such a wonderfully open country. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, later on, when I just finished my last book, the three song sisters, big sister, little sister, the red sister, two women at the heart of 20th century China, and their archives are mainly in America. And it's unbelievably easy and people are so friendly, so helpful. It's so straightforward to get these archive documents. Sorry, I, have I finished the Gerald Ford story? Then that, that's how we ran the Gerald Ford protection detail and we arranged an interview. And well, I have to say that a lot of that ease of access was thanks to Wild Swans. It's 30 years now, but at that time in the 1990s, the, the book was quite, um, I mean, people like Kissinger and Mobutu, he was told by Hong Kong that his protection officer was, was with him in a hair salon and emailed Marcos. They all knew um, about the book. And so they accepted our interview requests. That's the power of good writing. I, but I think that story is hilarious about the not-so-secret service. I have to say, we, we know historically in America, they've not always been good at keeping secrets. And it's the opposite in China, as I understand. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, the most difficult research was about Mao, because the archives about the Chinese Communist Party and Mao was closed. And now, of course, it's, it's more tightly closed, the central archives. But you know, a lot of the things about Mao came from Russia, because in, in Mao's time, and the Chinese Communist Party had this relationship with Moscow, if Moscow was the boss. So they, all their documents had to be given to Moscow. To, to, to Russia. And um, then under Khrushchev, after Stalin died in 1953, Khrushchev came to power. And Khrushchev gave a lot of archive documents back to China. And that became the bulk of a lot of the documents in the central archives. But those documents were in Russia, which is why Russian archives was such a treasure trove. And that's the most, most difficult. And then um, Empress Dowager Sashi was the next one. Difficult in a different, it's not so difficult not as Mao, but difficult in a certain, in another sense, because her time, at her time, the court, the archives were all in the court language. I mean, the archives containing documents about her and her dynasties are the first archives in Beijing in the Forbidden City in the initial years of the 21st century. There were historians working on the Qing dynasty 
and they sorted out the archives. They made, they published, you know, like um, volumes after volumes of complete works of, for example, Li Hongzhang, the, the most, most important man around the Empress Dowager, and the entire documents of how the Qing dynasty dealt with foreign countries, just masses of documents. But the language of those documents were the old language, the Wen Yanwen, the old language, and very often spoken in the court form, different from the average old language. And that was a very interesting challenge. And of course, there was no contemporaries of hers left to be interviewed. And then with my third biography, The Song Sisters, the research was much easier because, as I said, the archives were in America and in Taiwan, which is now a democracy, and it's much more open than the old days. It's becoming sort of more open almost daily. And also, I had already done a lot of research about them in a way from the research of Mao and the Empress Dowager. There were many overlaps. So that was relatively easy researching them. And it's so fascinating. I mean, the uh, Dowager uh, Shuji, uh, I, I didn't realize, and I don't know the others maybe maybe uh, in China, but I didn't realize how much she was responsible really for opening up China and uh, modernization and or these, I mean, there've been then competing forces then <laughs> opening and closing, but, and then the Sung sisters as well. I think we know the Sun Yat-sen and Sheng Kai-shek and, but, but how their role in uh, Chinese history as well, it was, it was unknown to me. But it's unknown to most people, particularly the Chinese. I mean, with the Empress Dowager Cixi, she's been maligned for more than a hundred years. She's been cast as this vicious, backward-looking, cruel woman who dragged China behind, who was responsible for all China's problems. I mean, she still has that image. It's only through research did I realize that this was not true? I first got interested in her when I started writing Wild Swans and because my grandmother had bound feet. So I did a little research on foot binding. And I realized to my surprise that foot binding was first banned by the Empress Dowager. I mean, this was so different from the, her image of being this backward-looking, archie-conservative, you know, this horrible, vicious woman. And then when I was researching Mao, I saw what free life Mao led in his youth under the Empress Dowager and in her legacy after, during the time of her legacy after she died in 1908. And what an incredibly free life Mao led and how many opportunities Mao enjoyed and the kind of freedom and the opportunities Mao enjoyed were far more than I, I had growing up under Mao many, many decades later. And so those discoveries made me want to write about 
the Empress Dowager. And of course, all the conclusions, how she was the first modernizer of China. And she was the person who brought China into the modern age. And all these conclusions emerged from the documents I studied. It's just, it's amazing how unfair history is. I mean, people often say, some people say, history will exonerate me or history will be, um, somehow they have this faith in history. But in fact, I, you know, after studying of history, I realized how unfair history often is. It's totally unfair to the Empress Dowager. Through the research, I, she became somebody admirable to me. Of course, she was not a saint. I mean, as a ruler of then a third of the world's population and in China, much larger than today. I mean, you know, she inevitably, she had to use iron, uh, iron hand and often it's a bloody hand, but she has also done this many other good things for China. And I just feel mm, one has to be just. And the thing is, in fact, her last project was to turn China into a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament. I mean, she'd made all the rules and did a lot of preparation work before she died in 1908. And in 1909, China had its first election in its long history. That was provincial election of provincial parliaments. And in 1913, China had a national election. And so in the first 16 years of Republican China, until Chiang Kai-shek seized power in 1928, China was a functioning democracy. I discovered this through writing about the Empress Dowager and writing the Song sisters and their husbands, Sun Yasin and Chiang Kai-shek. And that's another discovery that amazed me, myself. And yes, these strong women in history, it just makes you also ask, because they were able to exercise power and then sometimes having to exercise it subtly because they weren't men. So you ask yourself, if they were men, what would that progress or evolution have, you know, would have been easier for them to exercise that power? And then maybe some other subsequent events in history wouldn't have happened. Well, that's a, that's a very good question. It, well, the the thing is, take the Empress Dowager as an example. She had to exercise power behind the screen. I mean, literally to start with behind the screen and later, even very, even much, much later, she had to issue orders in the name of her adopted son, Emperor Guangxu, and, and before she had to issue edicts um, in the name of her five-year-old son, Tongzhi. And um, at the time, I mean, women, they were imprisoned in the house. They had bound feet, and the Empress Dowager had enormous power already, but she still couldn't set foot in the front part of the Forbidden City, 
that was the reserved for men. Women was supposed to to somehow to make it less sacred, which made her job much less easy. If she had been, I mean, we can't ask this question. If she had been a man, if she had been a man, of course, I mean, the process. She being somebody like her, and the process, the modernization process, probably would have progressed faster, and she would have less resistance. But on the other hand, I think that being a woman made a difference to. Her being a modernizer, because from her position, she would feel she would identify with modernization, with you know banning foot binding, giving women the chance for education. I mean, I mean also for her to become a ruler in her own right. I mean, she was very struck. By Queen Victoria, they were for a time contemporaries, and Queen Victoria could be could rule in her name, but Empress Dowager Cixi had to rule in the name of her son and adopted son. I mean, whereas she wanted to be ruling in her own name, and so I think she had the the curiosity and the motivation. About learning from the West and the modernizing China. So, being a woman, I think, also gave her the motivation. But of course, it's very sad that she she couldn't rule in her own right. These are such gripping stories. I'm they're like an opera. And then she is that right? She poisoned her her stepson Guangzhou, her nephew, I guess. And then the story of the Sung sisters as well is also a story of betrayals and the dramas.、Uh, you couldn't invent. I understand why you find your home in history. You couldn't invent more vivid, powerful characters. Mm. Yes, well, I mean, it is true that facts, truth, are stranger than fiction. I mean, certainly in terms of Chinese history, you couldn't invent them. You 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 stretch your imagination, and you still couldn't you still couldn't invent those.、Um, yes, which is why I'm enthusiastic. I'm as you can see, I'm an enthusiast for. Writing history, doing research, and just studying the past. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating that your books seem to tell history in a different way. That sometimes history remembers people as evil, but sometimes admirable, and it's not always true. So I was wondering, what role do you see yourself play in history as a writer who's doing all these research and interviews and collecting these stories that aren't. Put in the official documents. How is that helping you tell the truth of history? Well, I follow a very simple rule, which is、um, to follow the evidence. In my、uh, sort of profession, I think an honest historian writer, all you need to do is to follow the evidence. I just go to the primary sources. And follow follow the the papers, the documents, and draw my conclusions. I think the thing is, the Chinese history has been rewritten for more than a hundred years. To start when the Republicans overthrew 
the Manchu, the Qing dynasty. It's not even the Republican. When Sun Yat-sen started to build his own personality cult, Chiang Kai-shek succeeded Sun Yat-sen. And it was their business to malign the rulers before them. So they maligned the Empress Dowager, and they also maligned the first 16 years of the Republican government. And we, if you study Chinese history, you will know that it was referred to as a, the period of warlord fighting. Mm. But in fact, that was the period when Chinese leaders were elected. I mean, the, most of the fightings were actually done by Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek. And then when the communists came, and the communists then, because history in China was so important, and everybody wanted to say somehow they were on history's side. So the communists then rewrote history again. So I think today, all I want is just to return history to, to what is true. I mean, you, all you need to do is to follow the facts and to draw conclusions from the evidence. That's what I wanted to do and what I have been doing. And I think these three books, the three biographies after Wild Swans, the three biographies are like a trilogy my my kind of trilogy of modern Chinese history and its main characters. So I'm very pleased, actually, I'm, I feel rather proud. And actually, I was able to write. Um, it wasn't planned, but it turned out this way. And I was able to write about all the, the major players of modern China from the first modernizer, Empress Dowager Cixi, through the first Republicans, Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek and their wives, and then to Mao, communist China. So I, I feel that this is um, what I have written is this trilogy of modern China and its main characters. Well, you have very much a reason to be proud. And there's a beautiful symmetry with the four volumes. I guess if you think of them as a <laughs> quartet of books, the uh, single biographies, and then a, a trilogy of characters within the, the two other volumes. But what I'm just wondering, like as a historian, uh, you say follow the facts. And yeah. sometimes now I'm, I'm just wondering how that makes what kind of lens do you look at as you look at contemporary news, as you try to, you know, deciphering from going into the archives or deciphering from interviews, you're, you're piecing together history and, and surmising sometimes what reading between the lines, what happens. So, but as you read in between the lines and you look at, you know, contemporary China, I'm just wondering if you, you what parallels you draw, what is your analysis? What is your take? Well, parallel is something I banish from my mind when I do research. I know in Chinese history, there is a long tradition of comparing the past with the present, draw lessons, draw analysis. I don't do any of that. I absolutely do not make comparisons. And I don't have the present politics or society in mind when I study the past. 
I mean, the past, I just follow. I'm like an archaeologist. I think that's probably how I see myself. I'm an archaeologist. I just study these documents. So I don't draw comparisons from the current. I don't say what lessons we should draw. Not at all. I'm not. I'm absolutely no good at at analyzing the current. That's not my job. Oh, I'm sorry to ask. I know because some people do draw those comparisons, or they say that they we're living through a period where I don't think you can draw an exact comparison because of the cultural revolution that you live through is so extreme. But where there's a cancel culture or there's a mob thinking, some figures, you know, they make a mistake, and then there is this cancel culture that's being discussed a lot now, and whether questions of free speech and free thinking are really allowed for everyone. But I, I know. It's difficult to make those comparisons, particularly as someone who who lived through the Cultural Revolution. It's impossible to to compare. I think that these issues should be discussed separately, without particularly the, the political correctness or that you know particular American,、uh, mostly American thing. I think you really should be discussed separately from the Chinese situation because. It's not comparable, and the Cultural Revolution. It's not some spontaneous. Even if you know there are a lot of things we don't agree and so on, it's not like the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution was was started by a tyrant, by a dictator, to punish his political opponents. I mean, he used, he stirred up terror of a kind in America you can't imagine, of a horrible kind. I personally knew over a hundred people who committed suicide. The, the these sort of names. I mean, it's not nothing comparable to what's happening in America. I mean the destruction of monuments and old antiques and so on, and in China it was done on such a vast scale. I mean, if you go to China now, I mean it's it's a culturally barren place. I mean, only the landscape were there. The what even in my lifetime, in my childhood, there were old city walls, there were old statues. There, you know, my school was the oldest school in China. It was formed in 141 BC, and I saw my school being destroyed. It was a Confucius temple. I mean, systematic destruction, and just horrible, horrible destruction, and the teachers being subjected to denunciation meetings, where you know your hands were pulled back, your heads were pushed down, and like I said, my mother made to kneel on broken glass, and teachers being tortured by students, and all these did not come. Well, of course, the people who did this were horrible people. I mean, to me, they were capable of such cruelties, torture, and so on. But the whole thing started by Mao. His real targets weren't even the teachers; they were the, his party opponents. Which I, you know, it's a long story. I won't get in there. But it's not comparable. I mean, I'm always cautious. 
to draw comparison between history and current. And particularly, I wouldn't draw comparisons with acts of woke, whatever you call it, and you know, with the Cultural Revolution in China. No, I agree. I think it's it's uh, irresponsible, but it, it puts an image in people's minds. So I think it, in some ways it's good to put certain people in check if they are, have a tendency to get carried away. You, you don't want to repeat that. And now you're in Rome. Is that re- you've been in Rome for a while now? Are you researching, writing there, or is? Well, I love Rome. I'm, I'm having been through all the destructions in China. I treasure all the historical monuments, and it was just wonderful. You know, 65% of the world's great cultural monuments are in Italy. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in Rome? I mean, plus I'm thinking of, I, I don't know yet, all my subjects have emerged not by previous planning, but by somehow some inspiration, some some thoughts that came to me. And so I'm just waiting for that inspiration. Oh, I think you will get it in Rome and in throughout Italy. I'm an artist and I, I learned certain mm-hmm. techniques, Suki Derba there, uh, Fresco. So, I mean... For Western civilization, at least, it's certainly, if not the core, then one of the hearts of uh, Western civilization. The whole world. I defy you to find another place more, more beautiful and amazing and uh, you know, wonderful. I love the place. For someone who lives immersed in history, I can only imagine it is inspiring. And we hope to see glimpses of it, at least in your forthcoming books. You've really given us such a window into history, and it's been so illuminating. And I guess just in closing, as you think about the future and about education and the environment and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'm not um, the good person to give advice, but I think I, I think for anyone who's interested in history, particularly if somebody's interested in Chinese history, to go for the primary sources and to make discoveries. To make discoveries, I think that's that's so important. In fact, in all fields, if we can constantly make discoveries towards truth, that would be really wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jung Chang, for sharing your truth, for your books that bridge academia and vivid storytelling and help us understand China and the people who shaped its history. Thank you for sharing your insights on writing and researching and your reflections on the complexities of politics and society. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Anastasia Yang. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening!